0: Three primary views concerning end times prophecy. Interpreting end times prophecy should not be something that divides churches or that divides Christians. So, in other words, you can disagree with me and we can still be friends as long as we agree on the basic ideas of all three views that are the primary views of end times events so here's the things we have to agree on that the book of revelation and all prophecy ultimately points to and that is number one jesus is coming back for those who are his bride the church who have been made righteous by faith in christ alone that's a universal truth and that is the message of the book of the revelation of jesus christ and the second thing is this message Christians need to persevere through times where they're persecuted for their faith in Jesus while keeping their eyes fixed on eternity and continually sharing the gospel with others. These two ideas are agreed upon by all of the different views that you may have or have heard taught concerning in times events. We have to stay rooted and grounded in the hope that we have, and that hope is Jesus. He is coming back. We agree for the church. Now, when, what happens before, what happens after, who this person is, or what this symbol means, or what this thing means, all of those things are different. And I do want to educate you a little bit because I know there's been a lot of great interest around end times events, not only because of this series, but because where we're at in the world. And people kind of want to know where are we at in the middle of things and how are these things viewed and how come I've may have heard it taught differently at a church I previously went to, or maybe a tradition I grew up in, I heard it this way. So let's look at it in light of the three primary views of end times events so you can understand and go, oh yeah, that's more what I heard growing up. And remember, you can disagree with me and you can uh, 100% still uh, be a part of this church, still come here. Um, It's fine. I uh, know that other people interpret prophecy differently and I respect your right to be wrong. Okay? I totally respect that. I'm kidding. I'm fully aware that I can also be wrong. So, let's talk about the three primary views of end times prophecy. We're just going to kind of go over these real quickly and we're just going to hit some of the bullet points and these are going to be available for you on the screen as well, so you'll be able to see those. The first one that's probably the most popular that you've probably most likely grew up hearing or believing was dispensational premillennialism, all right? That's what it's referred to. Dispensational Premillennialism. So that uh, here's the bullet points of a premillennial belief: Christians are raptured before the Great Tribulation. The second coming of Christ comes after seven years of the Great Tribulation for those who trusted in Christ during the tribulation, and they persevered during those seven years of difficulty. So basically, the church gets raptured um, up to meet Jesus in the air, and then there's a seven literal year of a great tribulation where it's going to be really hard for you to be a Christian, but there will be people who come to faith in Christ. And if they persevere, they trust in Christ and Jesus is coming back again for that group of people. And the interpretations of a premillennial view are more literal than symbolic. So when they see years in the uh, prophetic text of Daniel or in Ezekiel or in the book of Revelation, they look at that more literally. They don't look at it as a symbol. They look at it more literally. And they also believe, and this is where the term millennial, pre-millennial, or before the millennium, millennial is a thousand years, and they believe that Christ will rule and reign on the earth for a literal, because remember they're more literal, a literal thousand year period or millennium with the Christians on the earth after the second coming. So there's this kind of rejuvenating of the earth after the great tribulation, after Christ has come back during this thousand year literal thousand year period that's why they're referred to as a pre-millennium uh group now while they're referred to as dispensationalist is because the dispensationalist believes in the literal translation of a national israel as being national israel so when you see israel throughout the new testament mentioned they believe those prophetic interpretations are actually referring to the nation, not necessarily a symbol of God's people. They believe that it is meaning literal national Israel. So that's why they're called dispensationalists. Um, So that's kind of where that term dispensational premillennialism comes from. Um, A version of this view was held by some early church fathers, but it disappeared through much of church history. And you can't find it um, for a very long time throughout church history but it made a resurgence in the 1860s and it became very popular and it, res- it, and it had this resurgence actually in American Christianity and it is the primary view that is believed by most uh, Americans because it's widely taught. It's probably the, mostly, uh, the, the, the view you've heard most through people who have television programs that communicate uh, end times events or that are really into prophecy. Um, notable names who uh, believe this are people like Hal Lindsey or Tim LaHaye, the person that authored the Left Behind series. Um, that's where that idea comes from. So it's attached to much of um, the Christian fiction world of Tim LaHaye with Left Behind, um, and that's his interpretation. A lot of the big major Christian networks, um, TBN, CBN, they are going to be dispensational premillennialists. So that's probably why you've heard that message more than others, but it's only recently since the 1860s, made a resurgence as a popular view, and it's primarily held by Americans. Also, um, Charles Stanley, um, who is a, a great Bible teacher, uh, he, he uh, is a uh, dispensational premillennialist, and so is um, John MacArthur, another great Bible teacher of our day. And so there's some notable names to kind of help you make those associations. So if you've heard from those teachers, that's where uh, you probably would have heard it from and what those beliefs kind of are. And so you're like, oh, okay, okay. I, 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 that makes sense, all right? The next one is postmillennialism, postmillennial or after the millennial, this belief is that society will gradually improve due to the preaching of the gospel so they don't necessarily think that things are going to get worse and there's going to be this terrible tribulation they think things in society are actually supposed to improve because we have received christ and we're supposed to be change agents in the world and our job is to actually make the world better and it is going to get better according to the way they interpret in times events the thousand-year reign of Christ, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, is more symbolic of a representation of a long period of time, not a literal thousand years, where the church of Jesus Christ will reign for a period of time. They call it the church age. On They'll reign on the earth to continue to preach the gospel, and society will continue to improve as a result. They believe that the great tribulation began after Christ's resurrection and will continue until the return of Christ. This view became popular somewhere around the 300s where you can read some of the early church fathers and historians who held to this type of view. And then it kind of dropped and then regained uh, a popularity around the 1100s and then again in the 1800s, but it is the least popular view of anything that you're probably going to regularly hear taught or anything that's really garnered a lot of attention. Um, it is the least popular view out of the three we're mentioning today. Some of the people who are proponents of this and who are teachers of this are the late theologian R.C. Sproul, um, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. Those are some heavy hitters. Those are some big names um, throughout uh, church history and people who have been instrumental in establishing doctrine and things like that. Um, But again, it's just another view There is a third view, and it is called amillennialism, or they don't believe in a millennial reign. It's not necessarily that amillennialists don't believe in a millennium, they just believe that the millennium is actually something that is actually happening, not that it's going to be this literal thousand year or that it is a symbolic representation as the post-millennialists do. Actually, amillennialism is a close cousin to post-millennialism. Amillennialists don't like being associated with no millennium because they don't believe that that that, that would be taking scripture and saying, well, that doesn't apply. They do believe it. They just look at it a little differently. They look at it as more of a spiritual reign. The millennium is a spiritual reign of Jesus Christ in his followers and during the church age on the earth. Persecution and tribulation are a part of a repeated cycle of evil that's driven by the spirit of antichrist and will continue to occur until the reign of Christ, until he returns and comes back for his bride. Amillennialists emphasize the historical context of Revelation and what the book meant to the first century readers and how they would have interpreted it. Most references to Israel in Revelation are symbolic references to the people of God on the earth, not the actual nation of Israel like the dispensationalist view of Israel. This view became popular around the 5th century, and has remained and been widespread throughout the world and throughout church history. It's a very close kind of crossover variation of post-millennialism, as you can kind of see, and people who held that that would be names you would maybe know would be the great reformer Martin Luther, um, the great theologian John Calvin, and early church father Augustine of Hippo, who was actually um, believed to have been one of the first uh, A millennialist, or one of the founding fathers of that view of the end times events. So, just so you know, it's where those three things came from. And you can look at that and see that, okay, I, one of those kind of maybe lines up with more of what you've heard or believed. But the main thing we have to keep at the focus is the reminder that Jesus is coming back for his bride, the church. We don't know when, we don't know exactly which thing is going to happen at what time. But we need to continue to persevere through tribulation. And depending on what hermeneutic you use to try to interpret the text, uh, you can come up with maybe some variations of that. But you have to stay true to the intent of the original um, audience and the author's intent that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that was to make Jesus Christ the star of the end times, to point people to Jesus Christ as the hope, and to persevere through tribulation and trials. Those are the things we have to keep uh, a, a close, close, tight grip on, no matter which view you may hold to. Um, in the last days, we can see that there is an evangelical blessing in which the benefits of salvation are procured by a perfect life, death, and resurrection, and glorification of Jesus Christ. And we can see how those things are freely available to us today, how they're available to the world they are the days of opportunity for unbelievers to repent and to turn to God. And they're days of responsibility for believers to proclaim the gospel all throughout the world. So when we say we're living in the last days or the end times, and we say that's now, depending on which one of those views that you may hold to, you could maybe interpret that differently but scripture says very clearly that no man knows the hour. And as we look at scripture, we see that the last days meant to the early church and meant even to the first disciples of Jesus. That they meant that now the gospel is available. Now, the opportunity to actually do these things, to proclaim th- who the Messiah is and to have people reconciled to God, that opportunity is now available. And they looked at that as the mark or the beginning of the last days because now we have opportunity to point people to Messiah, to the Savior, to Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God by faith. And that message is now an urgent message that is to be preached to all of the world. And that was kind of how they interpreted last days. You and I would kind of unfortunately take more of a Hollywood spin to that term end days or end times or last days, Um, and we would kind of think, oh no, destruction, doom, Armageddon, that's what we would interpret. That's not what the Bible means when it says those things. So if you think we're living in the end times means that, oh no, we're about to suffer nuclear apocalypse, and it's about to be Mad Max, you know, uh, type world scenario, and it's going to be insane chaos, and all this craziness is going to happen. That's not what they meant when they used the term last days or end times. They meant this is our opportunity. This is now the, the period of time that we have the urgency of the message of pointing people to be reconciled to God and for us to proclaim the gospel message. That's how they understood that. And when it's referenced in the Bible, the inauguration of those things, they clearly understood what it meant to live in the last days not necessarily living in the last days of being this kind of short seven-year period of difficulty or christ is coming back next week or at this date that wasn't how they viewed it so i hope that helps you because no matter which way you want to look at it no matter which camp you fall into our responsibility in the last days is important. Our priority is the same. The beginning of the end started with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's go look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. We're going we're to gonna kind of camp out here today in Acts chapter 2 and learn some things about the beginning of the end and how we are to navigate living in the last days. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, let's read through verse 21 to get an idea of what's going on here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed. They were astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia... Phygra um, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytites, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But other people mocked and said, they're filled with new wine. and thought they were drunk. Verse 14, but Peter, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, he stood with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness. And the moon to blood. Before the day, the great day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved here peter gets up and he proclaims that the last days have started they are here it is now time for this gospel message to be proclaimed all throughout the world what jesus told everyone to do in Matthew 28, uh, to go into all the world and to declare and make disciples and to preach this gospel and to see God's hand at work in them and through them, for them to go and do this. And he, he told them, he said, he said, I'm going to not depend on you to do this. I'm not going to look to your strength or your ability to do this. I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit of God to be able to do these things. He said, so go to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1. He told them, go to Jerusalem and wait, wait. And so they were waiting in that upper room in Acts chapter 2, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit began to manifest in a way that people began to have their eyes open to the gospel, and they were amazed at what was going on. You see, the coming of the Holy Spirit did this. The coming of the Holy Spirit brought a confirmation to followers of Jesus that even though Christ had ascended into heaven, He had not left them alone, that He gave them what He had promised them. He had promised them the Holy Spirit was coming It wasn't like, see you later, guys. Good luck with that whole, you know, telling people about me. Good luck with that whole uh, making disciples and seeing people's lives transformed and seeing people reconciled to God. I hope you figure it out. I'm out. You know that wasn't how Jesus left. Jesus said, "I'm going to always be with you. I'm going to, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the earth. I'm going to be able to send the Holy Spirit to be able to help you." to work in you to work through you to do my will in the world and so the holy spirit dwelling in every believer is a gift to the believer because the Holy Spirit's true power in the life of a believer is to seal them, to mark them as one of God's own, and to make them new. It is then the Holy Spirit who distributes gifts to the body of Christ, the church, as he wills to equip us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to strengthen, unify, and encourage the church. So isn't this cool that God is empowering us to do what he wants us to do, he's not depending on us. It's not as if we're making God nervous and he's biting his nails hoping we don't mess it up. No, he's saying what I'm gonna do in the earth in you is also going to be what I do through you and it's gonna be me doing it. So all of the glory then is pointed to God. It's God saving us, it's God filling us with his Holy Spirit and it's the Holy Spirit of God giving us gifts and empowering us to do the things we need to do For the gospel, for the evangelization of the message of Jesus Christ, for the uh, glory of God and everything that we're created and called to do, it's from God, it's done in us by God, and then our things that we're able to do, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are to God and for God, and it's all God. We get to be what? We get to be the vessel. That's what we get to be. We're that vessel, we're that jar of clay and we're being used in a way by God, and He promises us the Holy Spirit, so it's not dependent on the vessel. It's dependent on the Spirit of God, and it's pointing everyone to the power of God, not to any individual. The initial sign that the Holy Spirit used on the day of Pentecost was the sign of supernaturally enabling those in the upper room to speak in a language or a tongue that they did not know. When you see that word tongue there, some translations actually just say languages. That's what that word actually means. That word tongue means language. And so they were supernaturally able to speak a language they did not know, and people were gathered Here this day in Jerusalem, hearing these people speaking in their languages these things that were glorifying God and talking about the great works of God. And you see some of those those countries, those those people that were had traveled from afar to come to Jerusalem. And as they were there, they're hearing the Lord glorified in their own language. It is an amazing thing when you think about it, because the purpose of this gift was to confirm that the Holy Spirit was indeed now here to share the truth of Jesus to every nationality, to every group that had traveled from afar. Now, the reason these people had traveled from afar is because this was one of the three pilgrimages that a person that grew up as a Jew had to make, right? They had to come to Jerusalem for three different uh, celebrations, three different festivals. This was one of their three pilgrimages. This was during what was called the Festival of the Feast of Weeks. And they were celebrating the, all these different things that God had provided for them on these different weeks. This particular week that the Holy Spirit came was during the Festival of the Feast of Weeks for the grain offering. So they would honor God by saying thank you to him all week long for providing them with a harvest. It was the festival of the harvest, of a good grain harvest. And so they would offer up sacrifices to God uh, through the harvest. They would worship him and thank him and have their hearts focused on being grateful uh, for the food that was provided by the grain and how God had provided that for them. That was part of the focus of that particular week. The day of Pentecost was 50 days from Passover. Now the word pente is is the Greek word for 50. So it's 50 days after Passover, Passover when Christ had died, when Christ did what He did for us on the cross. And now we see that 50 days after Passover, the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had given, this festival that had been celebrated on this day during the Feast of Weeks that had been celebrated for hundreds of years. God set it up strategically to help show who He was and to show His faithfulness. As a matter of fact, one of the cool things that they used to do back then that they still do to this day for those Jews that have not received Christ but are still Orthodox Jews that are holding to the tradition of the Jewish faith, what they did and still do is that day on the day of Pentecost. They would read the story from the book of Ruth, of Ruth, and how Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, the one who brought the outsider who was not naturally a part of the family, brought her into the family by being her. Relative, her kinsman redeemer, and had redeemed her and provided for her and given her everything that she needed, they would have read that story every year on the day of Pentecost, the day that God sovereignly ordains for the Holy Spirit of God to fall and be confirmed as now you are a part of this harvest, and I'm going to further confirm that by empowering these people in the upper room to speak in all these different languages so that the gospel is now wide open. The harvest is wide open for now all people to hear and to come and to be reconciled unto God. And the people of God are being empowered to do this by the Holy Spirit of God. This was a big deal. This was a big deal. It was significant and so many ways. This festival um, on the day of Pentecost is, is called Shavat. You can read about it in Leviticus 23, verse 15 through 22, if you would like to. And you can see the significance of and and how God set all of this up with the the grain offering and and the harvest fields now being ripe and wide open and the Holy Spirit being given to empower and embolden the church to go out and proclaim the message of Jesus, how this would have confirmed in the hearts of those that day, even the way the Holy Spirit fell. It says the, the Spirit fell upon them as cloven tongues of fire. It would have been a sign that this is pure. This is from God. This is something that God has ordained ordained, and then to confirm it further by them proclaiming the glory of God and the mighty works of God in all of these different languages. It is now time for the gospel to be brought to every nation. It is now the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of of the last days. It's now the opportunity for the church to do what the church has been created to do, and that is to continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that all men might know, so that whosoever would believe, so that hearts and eyes would be open and would be softened and transformed by the power of God through what Christ has done on the cross. What a beautiful and powerful story. Another significant thing that they would celebrate on the day of Pentecost is that it's historically and traditionally accepted that the day of Pentecost was also the day that King David died. And so they're honoring King David, they're reading the story of Ruth, they're celebrating all of these different grain offerings and and, and the provision that God has given them. And then in the middle of that, Joel 2, the prophecy from Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled. What a powerful, powerful thing to have happened in that moment. God sovereignly chose to fulfill Joel Joltu in that moment by showing them a new and better covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 31, where it's no longer going to be that, that, that thing that's written on a stone tablet or, or, or something that's recorded in, in, in a scroll, but it's going to be written on the hearts of people. I'm making a new covenant with my people, and now this thing has been established by the sacrifice of Christ, and by the coming of the Holy Spirit. It helps us also to see and make sense of when Jesus, while he was on the earth, he told all of his followers, it's better that I go away so the Holy Spirit can come. Can't you see a little bit more now why this is better? The Holy Spirit comes. What could be better than having Jesus on the earth? That doesn't make sense. I mean, Jesus, why would you leave? And Jesus said, it's better that I go away for you so that the Holy Spirit, the comforter, can come and he's going to tell you about me. He's going to proclaim me. He's not going to speak on his own will. He's going to speak only what my father tells him to speak. And he's going to point people to Jesus. And that's exactly what we see happening and playing out here in a very strategic time on the right day, at the right moment. Just like Romans chapter 5 even lets, gives us the confidence that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't just at just some random time Christ comes. No, it's at the right time on the right day, because what is it doing? It's showing these, these people uh, uh, that have been holding to these traditions and keeping these festivals and keeping all of these traditions and having to hold them to the team, man. I mean, these people pass these down from generation to generation. They were instructed to, to do this. Why? Why were they instructed to hold all these festivals and these feasts and all these things you can read about in Leviticus and all these things you can read about during the time of Moses that were established for them to begin to go through these different traditions? Well, the reason wasn't just for tradition's sake. The reason was because when Messiah comes, He wanted them to be able to know and to connect the dots and go, oh, the reason we sacrifice the Lamb is because the Lamb of God is actually the Son of God who takes away the sins once and for all, not once a year on the Day of Atonement. He wanted them to see, oh, the the death angel passing by because of the blood. I'm now able to, to walk in eternal life because death is not the end for me, because I'm covered in the blood, just like God gave that instruction to Moses, to the children of Israel who were in Egyptian captivity right before God set them free into the promised land. And You see all of these things that it should have clicked, and for some it did. For some, they got it, but some, they didn't get it. But the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of that prophecy was the beginning of the end. And we can see where some of that was fulfilled. This was partially a partially fulfilled prophecy because you also see the signs of war being prophesied about as well the, with the, um, uh, the earth being filled with blood, with fire, vapor, smoke sun be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. A dispensational interpretation would take that literally, and they, uh, they would, uh, a premillennial dispensationalist would be looking at the different um, lunar phases of the moon and looking for a blood moon, um, but, and post-millennial or amillennialist view of that would understand that to be symbolic as signs of wars, as Jesus prophesied even, that in the last days there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. These things are going to continually happen. They're going to cycle through. They're going to continue to increase, and you're just going to hear more and more about it. I think it's interesting because now with the advent of the internet and technology, we actually know more about wars and rumors of wars that are happening in the world than they would have known back then. So yes, as things begin to get worse and increase, we're hearing more about wars and rumors of wars. Why? Because we have the ability to communicate across the world. Uh, I've I've got a a Zoom call tomorrow with a guy in India. That's insane to even think we're going to be looking at each other, talking to each other uh, about the Lord and trying to encourage one another tomorrow morning I'm going to be visiting with someone who is thousands of miles away. Never before in history was that possible, but now it is. So yeah, when bad things happen in the world, you're going to hear more about it. Uh, Those things were always happening before. That's the thing you need to realize. You just now know about it now because we have the advent and the luxury of technology. But with that comes this increased wars, rumors of wars, Jesus prophesying and pointing to and getting it with pinpoint accuracy, showing us the things that are going to be happening as his return is drawing near. And so as you read this the scripture, you can see this is a, a partially fulfilled prophecy, but those, that, that war piece is, is going to continue to happen and will continue to happen. And then eventually Christ will return and uh, put an end to all of that and the cycle and the spirit of antichrist and all those different things are going to be ultimately um, put to death and defeated. But a strong faith that's going to endure to the end is going to be a person who is confident in Jesus and who is full of the Holy Spirit. A person who is confident in Jesus and is full of the Holy Spirit. He first speaks, Joel's prophecy, he first speaks about God pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. And then these things are going to be happening in the life of a believer. These things are going to be happening within the church because these people are filled now with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not dependent on their ability any longer. It's not dependent on them to be able to try to get it right or to try to strategize through it. I mean, strategy's good, I get it, and and I love being a part of those conversations, but there must be a deeper dependence on the Holy Spirit because this is his church. This is not Derek's church. This is not your church, my church. This This is the church of Jesus Christ. And it should be led and directed by the Holy Spirit of God. And so we need to understand the good news here is that everyone, in verse 21, he said, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we can't save people in our own strength. We can't do anything about that except depend and trust on the Holy Spirit to help us to continue to persevere, to continue to share the message of the gospel, to continue to operate in the gifts that he's given us to make sure that that message continues to go forth. It's such a powerful thing when a Christ follower depends on the Holy Spirit instead of upon their own strength. Let's read a little bit more of this text. Let's pick it back up where we left off in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, he's still giving the same talk here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you uh, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself knows "'This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan "'and foreknowledge of God, "'you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. "'God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death,' Until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What just happened? Peter is addressing this group of people who, imagine, just try to put yourself there in the scene. All the stuff we talked about with the festival, all the stuff we talked about with with, with all of the significance of the Holy Spirit being poured out on that day, the book of Ruth being read, Um, the grain offering, the offering of the harvest being celebrated, David's death this was also believed to be the day that God gave the law to Moses as well on Mount Sinai. It was celebrated all on this day of Pentecost. This day of Pentecost in the um, Hebrew, uh, the Greek word's is Pentecost, but the Hebrew word is atazeret, which means conclusion. I'm telling you, this was a significant day, and now you got Peter... All of a sudden he shifts the message from reciting Joel's prophecy and saying this is what you're experiencing and then he shifts it over to what Christ did on the cross and how he was resurrected and then he starts talking about David. Why would Peter start talking about David? Because everybody's mind's on David on the day of Pentecost because everybody's celebrating and honoring the great King David and they're celebrating him, they're lifting the name of David up And here, Peter says, Jesus is better than David. And he does it in a very clear and direct way because he said, David's still in the grave. (laughs) We know where his tomb's at, and his bones are still there. But this Jesus, by the way, who you crucified, which is a very bold statement in and of itself, he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, he's not in the grave anymore. We're witnesses to this. He's publicly saying this. You don't understand the weight of him saying this. They didn't live in a free society like you and I do where we can get up with a megaphone and say whatever we want to say and there's very little consequence other than somebody booing us off the stage or maybe beating us up a little bit or whatever. No, Peter was risking his life by saying these things. You need to recognize the weight of the risk that Peter just took by saying these bold declarations. To a Jewish people, he's saying, your hero, David is dead, and he is not as great as Jesus. How was he able to do that? He was filled with the Spirit. He was filled with boldness. We see other times where Peter was filled with the boldness of the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly by being filled with the Holy Spirit. He, was, he, he now had had this encounter with God to where, remember Peter, just remember who we're talking about here. This is the disciple who, when Christ was on his way to be crucified, was identified in a crowd, and a woman said to him, I know you, you're one of those people who followed Jesus. And what did Peter do? He denied him three times, right? Before the rooster crowed as Jesus prophesied. What would make a man who had been so concerned with his own self-preservation that he was willing to deny Jesus three times, even cussed one time, and denied Christ in a vile way to all of the sudden now he's saying, and this Jesus you crucified is better than David who you're celebrating and memorializing today? What would make that transition in someone's life? He, he experienced the resurrected Christ and he knew it was true and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The same thing that empowers us to be bold for Christ and to share the gospel. When we encounter Jesus, when our eyes are opened, when we have that encounter with him and we receive him by faith and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are then in that position to begin to speak boldly the things of God, to declare the truth to endure persecution. Peter was no longer concerned about self-preservation in that moment. Now we'll see later in Peter's life where he wrestled with that. He kind of bounced back and forth. He wanted the Jewish people over here to like him and then he got confronted by the Apostle Paul. But at this moment, this initial filling of the Spirit, this guy was bold. And he was saying, on the day you celebrate David, I want you to know Jesus is better and greater than David. As a matter of fact, The only thing that makes David a part of the story is that there was a promise given to David that one of his offspring would be the Messiah. That's the connection. That's why we have honored David for all these years, not because David is so great, but because David was going to be a part of the history of bringing about the Messiah. That's why we've been remembering David. But now, let's focus on Jesus, who's greater than David. This is is powerful stuff. Let's finish reading this through verse 41. We left off in verse 37. This is powerful. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He says, Listen, this is not just for, for us, this is for you. And then even the people who aren't represented here. So he didn't want them to get this mentality of just limiting the salvation experience to just the groups that were represented. He said, even people who aren't here, even nationalities that aren't represented, this is for all men. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked and perverse generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to the church that day about 3,000 souls. Man, You see now why these people were cut to the heart. You see now why they were at this place of... You you gave this convincing message that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. We saw, we experienced. What do we do with this? We're feeling guilty over being a part of the crowd that had mocked and rejected this Jesus. And we heard whisperings of a resurrection... And now you're telling us, and we're seeing the confirmation of it, and everything's clicking and connecting. And what do we do? What's, what's the response? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized. That baptism was that public acknowledgement to everyone there that these people were now following Jesus, that they were identifying with Christ through his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, through that act of water baptism that they were being baptized to publicly profess this this newfound faith, this, this heart transformation that had happened on the inside of them. That's why it was so vital as soon as they received Christ for them to be baptized. That's why we still practice baptism to this day. Not because the baptism itself saves, because it does not. But it rather lets everyone know it marks you. You're marked with the lamb publicly. I'm publicly marked. I'm publicly a part of this. This was a bold thing for these people to do. They're doing it right in the middle of a Jewish festival, right in the middle of trying to celebrate David, trying to celebrate the law, talking about what all God had done through providing for them bread and and grain and this great harvest. And God says sovereignly, that's when the Holy Spirit's going to come. That's when the last days are going to start. That's when I'm going to empower my children to be able to do in the earth what I want them to do for my glory and my good purpose. What a powerful time. And we need to understand that Jesus is coming again. And his church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, must persevere. And in our day and age, there are a lot of people, much like in Peter's day, that would want to mock. There are a lot of people who would want to try to get you to get off of the focus of Christ and to get distracted. This message of the end times, this message of the last days, it doesn't matter where you line up with your eschatology or with your interpretation of these last days, this camp or this camp or this camp. I just want you to understand those things. But what matters, because if someone is saved, if someone is as the Jews were that day, they cut to the heart, then we should be moved we should be deeply moved to live in light of eternity, to live in light of the gospel, to live in light of the things that God has called us to, to live with a sense of urgency to proclaim the gospel. When someone was empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. I would dare say that we can go our entire lives having followed Jesus and are we seeing people being saved as a result? Or are we just trying to figure ourselves out and do everything for ourselves? That's not the purpose of the Holy Spirit for us to just figure this all out and how to have a great life here on earth. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to stir within us this this newness of life, this awareness of God in us, this awareness of reconciliation and give us these gifts to be able to accomplish the things that he wants us to accomplish and to be aware of that, to ask for that, to be sensitive to that, to depend on that, to lean into that. Because that day Peter was not leaning into Peter's strength because we saw where Peter's strength got him. Peter's own ability got him to a place when the pressure was on. Man, he crumbled it showed us humanity. But then a person who has been made new by the salvation power of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit is filled with a supernatural boldness, a sense of urgency. And Jesus said, we need to ask for that. <laughs> ask. You have not because you ask not. Ask. is as, as Jesus said, if, if there's a, a father who his son asks him for bread is he going to give him a rock is he, if he asks for fish is he going to give him a serpent no he said how much more then you who know how to give good gifts to your children how much more then is your father in heaven going to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask the comforter so Lord I want to be used by you I want to be filled with your spirit to proclaim your, your good news I want to depend on you I want to be stirred cut to the heart have my eyes open And I don't think this filling of the Spirit is just a one-time thing. I think that we need to be continually filled with the Spirit because we can get off in our flesh. We can get focused on the fear. We can get focused on what society is demanding our attention be focused on and we miss proclaiming the gospel. Or we think that this is somehow up to us. But when I say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Give me what I need to do what you have created me to do. When I approach Him that way, when I'm I'm looking for opportunity, when I'm spending time with Him and filling, filling, continually filling myself through prayer, through, through spiritual songs and hymns and through the scripture and through the fellowship of the believers, I'm being filled. I'm being filled. To do what? To go. I'm being filled to go. I'm being filled to persevere. I'm being filled to go to that workplace where no one believes in Jesus, and you may be the only one in in the whole factory or in the whole office suite. You may be the only person in the entire school. It seems like everyone else is going one way. How can you persevere? How can you continue to stand when everyone else is mocking you, isolating you, ostracizing you? How can you move? I just need a different job. Do you? Maybe God has put you there for His purpose and His glory. Maybe you're there because you're supposed to be filled with the Spirit to be able to proclaim the gospel, to be that light in the darkness, to be given those words by the Holy Spirit to speak in those different moments where the Holy Spirit will inspire you and give you the word. So, what do I do? What, what, what do I do? Just like those people that day, what do we do? What do we do? I'm cut to the heart, I'm stirred you repent. Be baptized. Put your trust in Christ. Continue to grow in your walk with Christ. Continue to live in light of eternity. Continue to deepen your dependence on God. Continue to share the gospel. Continue to expand the impact of the church as we are led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Church, we've got to live like eternity matters. So my hope and prayer for you today is that you would have your confidence in Christ strengthened that you would have your dependence on the Holy Spirit's work in you to continue to work in you, what brings glory to God, and for you to be strengthened. May the name of Jesus be proclaimed by the people of Word of Grace today. The people who are a part of this church family, whether remotely, whether maybe you even just happened upon this today, may the church grow, may it expand, may it be strengthened in these last days by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through His church. It's not up to you. It's not dependent upon you. But in this moment, as you're being cut to the heart, how are you going to respond? My hope and my prayer would be that if you don't know Christ, that you would repent today, that you would want to be baptized, that you would want to put your faith, your hope, your trust in Him, and then tell other people, have that public proclamation, whether it's through a water baptism or whether it's through posting it on facebook or whether it's through making a phone call or visiting with a friend and telling them and those of you who are christ followers i pray that today you're 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 cut to the heart as well to be stirred to deepen your dependence on him that you're stirred with a new sense of urgency a new passion to pursue him to follow him to persevere to continue to be that light in the darkness to continue to make impacting eternity a priority in your life and in your family's life. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do these things today. Lord, we need your help because we recognize our position and our position is one of being a vessel and you are the one who fills the vessel with you. You're the one who pours out of the vessel. You're the one who uses the vessel. So Lord, you're the one who purifies the vessel. You're the one who has created it as you've created us and shaped us on the potter's will. So Lord, we know as you're shaping and pouring in and out and we want to be used by you and we want to be empowered by your spirit to do what only you can do in us and through us for the glory of God. So we just ask, Lord, that you would encourage the body of Christ today, strengthen the resolve of the body of Christ today and that those that don't know you, that their eyes would be open, that they would be overjoyed today and cut to the heart because they have found something more valuable than what this world has to offer. That they have found hope and rest and belonging and forgiveness and grace in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for doing what only you can do in hearts and lives, Lord. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.